am Sharon Roberson Pender, and I'm the President and CEO of the Capital Region Minority Supply Development Council and the operator of the U.S. Department of Commerce Minority Business Development Agency in Virginia, the first of its kind in the Commonwealth. The Capital Region Minority Supply Development Council is one of 23 affiliates of the National Minority Supply Development Council, the nation's premier body for certifying minority-owned businesses. Our mission is to certify, connect, develop, and advocate for minority-owned businesses. This year, we are incredibly excited because we're celebrating 50 years of advocating for connecting our corporate members with well-established minority-owned firms. And today, in this special episode, we pay tribute to a legend, a true titan, and a dynamic businessman, Mr. Robert L. Johnson. Yes! Founder and chairman of the RLJ Companies. As our mission endures, as it has over the last 50 years, we are extremely pleased to recognize and honor Mr. Johnson for his contribution to minority businesses, his leadership, his tireless work, and no wonder he is being inducted to into our MBE Hall of Fame during our 50th anniversary celebration. So you can imagine, we're just incredibly proud today to have this monumental and historic discussion. Mr. Johnson, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It means a great deal to us at the Capital Region Council, to all the corporations we serve, but in particular for the thousands of minority-owned businesses that we serve and continue to serve over the last 50 years. As a sure, it's, it's, it's good uh, talking to you again. And, and first of all, thank you very much. And thank you for the Minority Suppliers Development Council for uh, giving me this recognition and honor. And I'm, I'm very proud uh, that, that under your leadership, the council has done so much for minority business, not only in the region here, but also around the country. And so I'm, I'm really honored to spend this time with you uh, talking about uh, your role and the leadership you bring to the Minority Suppliers Development Council. You, you know, um, there are certain milestones kind of like you reach in life. And so I will live to tell the story to my children and grandchildren that I had the opportunity to have this conversation with. You just don't know how much it means. So thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. <laughs> Listen, as America's first black billionaire, America's first black billionaire, you've had an incredibly and amazing journey. And when you know, when we look back over your life, the journey of Robert Johnson, Bob Johnson, starting in Mississippi, one of 10 children, um, the first to go to, to go to college, the first to get a, a master's degree in your family. Um, and we look at where you are right now. Um, tell us, if you could, um, what you would consider the three most important things you've learned along this incredible journey. Well, well Sharon, one of the things that uh, you learn in life, and, and if you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a or in my case, an entrepreneur, you, you find there's some elements that allow you to move forward to achieve your vision and your passion. 
And, and the one that's, first of all, you've got to have a foundation. And that foundation usually starts with your parents mm. and, your, and your family. And I'm grateful to have had uh, two parents that believed in the work ethic believed in and the having confidence in yourself. I often tell people the most important asset you have in life is a belief in yourself. Uh, that'll carry you forward. And I think the other is uh, having a desire to bring people together hmm. who can help you achieve your dream. It's, it's a common saying that no person is an island uh, and, or that it takes a village. Uh, those people who've been successful, whether they've been entrepreneurs or creators or uh, intellectual uh, writers or whatever you want to call them, they've been inspired by somebody and they've been supported by a lot of somebodies. And so to me, that's what has sort of helped me achieve the things that I've done. And so I always talk in the form of not I, but in terms of we. So all the things that you've listed that, that have been accomplished uh, under my uh, engagement, there, there's a we. There have been people who've been with me, who've supported me and guided me from the very beginning to today. And that's why I think that uh, I'm proud to say that it, Everything that I've accomplished has a we in front of it. I, I think it's incredible and something that um, that um, people can take advantage of. But when you look back over the years and look at what happened with your decision to um, get into the entertainment, you know, the, the cable world with, with BET, um, what was your influence there? Uh, was it looking at that opportunity, looking what the FCC was doing? You know, what was what was there at that particular point in time? Well, Sharon, you know that there's been uh, before BET other media companies that spoke to the interests and needs, both from content, entertainment, information to the black community. And obviously, I have to give homage to the, obviously the greatest person who did that long before BET was the great John Johnson, the founder of Ebony and Jet. Okay. I mean, Jet, Jet was the news engine that kept Black Americans informed, not only about their, uh, their uh, success as a growing population after years of, of um, racial discrimination and Jim Crowism. Uh, Ebony chronicled the rise of the Black middle class. And, and gave everybody confidence that we can achieve. But it also talked about the trials and tribulations we had. I mean, it was Jet Magazine was our drum, our news. And so when you talk about the, the murder of Emmett Till, That's uh, that story was on every Jet Magazine, shown in every barbershop, every beauty parlor, and every place else. And, and, and that's why it was, in my mind, as I saw the cable industry evolve into a media dealing with uh, cable television, electronic transmission of video. The foundation for BET was in Jet and Ebony. It was in Essence Magazine. It was in Black Radio, which played you know, Black music when a lot of stations wouldn't play Black music. And, and so uh, I, I would say that BET had its birth 
in the accomplishment of those other media pioneers, uh, John at, at Ebony, uh, Ed Lewis and Clarence at uh, Essence, mm -hmm. and, and of course, Earl Graves at, at Black Enterprise, which relates directly to the success of the Minority Supplier Business Council. So again, back to the idea, it takes a village and it took that kind of inspiration for me to launch BET. It, it occurred during a technical rev technological revolution. A satellite was allowed you to beam a signal up to the satellite, bounce that signal back down to cable systems all across the country, enabling BET to become a national footprint, not just a local station like a regular TV station, but a national distribution platform that gave its, its deep reach into the black community, whether it's big cities in the North uh, to small towns in the South. Wow. You said a couple of things. You talked about some of the other titans and pioneers that kind of put part of that, that puzzle together that you were able to leverage um, with the John Johnsons, et cetera. But um, when you look back over um, what you saw at that particular time with cable, um, did you ever envision the streaming market that you basically started that, you know, that we would be here today with that? Did you envision that at all? Well, Sharon, the one thing I've always believed that there is no limit on innovation. Okay. As long as there's somebody born, there's a new idea born with them and a new vision born with them. And it's just a question of how do you bring all of those elements together with and with technology, how do you bring it together with capital, of course? How do you bring it together with someone who is passion and vision driven to achieve something that no one else has ever done? If you can go back into history, everything that's ever caused a revolution, social, economic, intellectual, artistic, creative, whatever you want to call it, somebody had to believe that if I just pursued this, this is a result. I don't know whether it's Thomas Edison with the light bulb, whether it's Henry Ford with mass production of automobiles, whether it's Sir Edmund Hillary, who the first one to climb Mount Everest. Uh, entrepreneurs, visionaries, they see things that no one has ever done before, and they devote their, their, their passion, their belief in themselves, their work ethic to that goal, and they bring along people to do it. And, you know, and so that's, that's the way I, I looked at it is my, and I'm just sort of following the footsteps of people who can, you know, before anybody else does it, they can look over the hill and see something that should be done. And then they devote themselves to pursuing it. And, and that's what makes the difference between those people who want to be successful and achieve something that's never been done. They find that vision, they find that passion, and then they uh, throw themselves into it. Look over the hills and see what needs to be done and then walk into the abyss and get it done. And so that's, that's kind of like, it sounds like a mantra of you being a serial entrepreneur. When we look at, you know, beyond BET, you know, the, the first African-American NBA franchise, you own over a hundred hotels. I don't know. Um, I know at any moment now, these things can change depending on what's going on. Um, 35 auto dealerships got into the gaming industry, um, the urban um, channel. Um, and, and so I think, you know, did you recently um, um, sold? And so 
as a serial entrepreneur, where the, are the connection points in terms of when you make those decisions, when you take the risk in terms of those, you know, to, to look at that variety of, of, of efforts? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of, our, you're absolutely right. I am an serial entrepreneur. And it, it, Sharon, it, it comes from just, again, like back to what you said, it's just believing that something should be done. You know, I, I believe that when I started BET, that there should be a black cable channel that should provide content targeted to African-Americans and giving African-American talent a platform to showcase their creativity. Uh, and when I got into the automobile dealership business, there have been other black people in the automobile dealership mm -hmm. before me, but I, I was approached by someone, uh, a gentleman named Mac McClarity, former chief of staff to, uh, to uh, President Bill Clinton, Mm. and said, Bob, I'd like to partner with you. And the other element, if you trace and look at all of the success I've had, Sharon, it has been due to my belief that strategic partnerships mm. work in the best interest of both partners. And it is a important, important platform for Black American businesses to be successful. Uh, and if I have any advice I'd give to any, both black and white uh, business people in America, seek out partnerships between black and white Americans because white Americans have assets. They bring capital, they bring scale, they bring connectivity. Black Americans have ideas. They have a belief and a vision of how to better serve our community better than some white businesses. When you put those two elements together, that's a key to success. BT's success was critical to a white cable owner, a gentleman who I'm still close friends with today and will be forever, uh, John Malone. Mm. John Malone owned cable systems. I had an idea about BET. I'll never forget at one of the meetings at the Cable Association, he said, Bob, if you ever have an idea, come out and talk to me about it. And I went out and talked to him and Sharon, he, he needed just, he needed content for his cable subscribers and systems he had. I needed distribution over his cable system. Okay. And John Malone put the first $500,000 into black entertainment television. And out of that $500,000, the relationship I had with John over the years resulted in BET being the first company to go public first company to go private again, and then sold to Viacom, where it sits today, for, as you said, approximately $3 billion. So to me, if, if one thing this country needs is the relationship that can happen when white business people reach out and touch Black business men and women and say, you've got assets and ideas and a work ethic that can help you build something in your community that relates to it. I have capital and I believe this country should share our economic success. Why don't we sit down and become strategic partners? If we had more of that, you'd have more Bob Johnsons, you'd have more Michael Jordans, you'd have more Oprah Winfrey's and, and so on. And if that's where I think the story needs to be told by every organization why is it that certain groups of people, individuals are successful? What is the common thread 
that runs between Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Bob Johnson, Oprah Winfrey, Robert Smith. I can go on and on. Natural talent helps. Michael Jordan was a natural talent, but he also recognized a brand value that comes from that natural talent. Same with Oprah Winfrey. And mm -hmm. so that's those are the things that I think need to be discussed more and more among all business people. And whether it's the business council joining with the Minority Supplier Development Council, those are the, the, the uh, dialogues that we need to have to create more successful opportunity within the Black community. Not, not just at the level of, of millionaires and billionaires like the, some of the names I just gave, but it's just everyday people, mom and pop businesses who could benefit from knowing the large company across the street. And I think, you know what, that was the premise by which this was created 50 years ago to make that connection. But I think there has to be some kind of support and navigation in order to make that happen. And so it sounds um, like what you, what you are suggesting, and I think that's, that's really great. I love to be able to share that information. But it's also being in a position to understand and being in that place um, of deal flow. And it sounds like you built those relationships and you were able to figure out the deal flow strategy, but, it, uh, but, but um, and having those key relationships. And that's very valuable to share. So thank you. Sharon, you're absolutely right. I, I often said is if you, you got to get into the deal flow and, and, and sometimes that we in the black community feel that we need to sort of look at ourselves as wholly owned businesses. I have a black business. It must mm. always stay black owned. And Sharon, you and I talked about how you define black ownership and how it ties into some of the work of the council. But one of the, one of the challenges, if you always want to stay 100% black owned or 90% black owned, you run the risk of missing out on both the intellectual capital that a non-black person can bring to your business. And of course, the financial capital, because I'm not telling anything out of school. Sure. There's absolutely more capital in the white community than there is in the black community. And we need to sort of figure out how can we get to the point where if we want to say we want to have minority-owned businesses, how do we define that in a way where these minority-owned businesses are not restricted by that definition of what is minority-owned to access the capital and access to strategic advice and guidance? And that, to me, if I were to give a, an assignment to the Minority Suppliers Development Council, it would be, how do we figure out a way where we can be proud to say we are a minority-owned business? business, but we're also proud to say we have strategic partners who can help us grow. Imagine what Michael's business would be if he didn't have access to Phil Knight, right. the founder of Nike. Nike. You know, that combination has made Michael what he is today and, and outside of his basketball career. Those are the things that I think we we as Black Americans need to be comfortable with having a dialogue about, yes, we want to be minority-owned. We're proud to be minority-owned because we put our, our work ethic and our effort into it. But there's nothing wrong with finding people who share the same values for your community that you do 
and they are willing to partner with you with all the elements. That's that's what happens in general in, in white America in general. Mm-hmm. We need to tap into that attribute and make us uh, make black Americans as business people uh, able to tap into the things that are critical to creating wealth and creating uh, large scale opportunities. Outstanding. Outstanding. Um, I'm so glad we we're able to capture that because that is just really, really solid and sage advice. But I, I wanted to um, ask you a couple more questions while I have you here. So don't know the next time I'll be able to to um, have this conversation. But, you know, over the years, has there been any deals that you've regretted passing up? There's been one deal, well, one big deal, I would say, okay. that I regret I couldn't pull up. I've always been a believer that black businesses should merge. Mm. and form strategic partnerships. Okay. White companies merge all the time. You read about in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, so-and-so company has acquired this or they right. formed a strategic partnership or a merger. That's right. And where they see, hey, you have this, I have that. If we put it together, we can reduce costs over here. It's what you call it. We can, we can get economies of scale in doing this and let's do a business together. You know, mm-hmm. and... Unfortunately, that does not happen that much in the black community. So the one business deal I wanted to do, I really wanted to merge BET with Radio One and TV One. Wow. Particularly Radio One. Wow. The theory behind the merger was we were dominant as the only black cable programming in TV. They were dominant as the primary black radio station group in radio. So I, my idea was, could you imagine how we could bring all of that audio, all of that video and audio power to attract audience, and then go to all the large advertisers and say, hey, you wanna reach X percent of the black community? Let's do a joint advertising deal with BET, TV One, Radio One, because look how much black and how much audience power we could bring to you for your product. And look how, and look how much Black people spend. Spend, <laughs> right. And then we do the same thing of political power. So if you wanted to reach the Black community for political reasons, you had to sit down not only and talk to this new venture, if it were ever to come about, but also we would have an influence on your particular political point of view. Because if we didn't agree that you were doing things in the best interest of the Black community, we turn that network to issues that you ought to be focused on. So that was the one sort of dream I had that if this would ever come about, we'd make a lot of money, we'd have tremendous political and economic clout, and it could be a harbinger or, or, a, or a forerunner of what other black companies could do if they were both in the same company. You know, same thing automobile dealership business. Why couldn't black automobile dealerships, instead of saying, hey, I'm going to be, I got five over here, I got 10 over there. Hey, guys, we're selling the same thing. We're selling cars. Let's come together and create a dominant automobile dealership group run by black automobile dealership owners. So these are kind of the things I always thought about. And, uh, you know, there are you know, obvious reasons that things don't happen and, and none of them are bad. 
in terms of the personalities, but it's just, you ask me. And so I tell you, that was sort of the one thing that I always believed in is let's find a way to merge. And maybe there's still the opportunity to do so. What a wonderful strategy that would be. Um, and, and the fact that you, that you think in terms of focusing there, because, you know, we see other black billionaires racing for space. <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything, um, any interest in the space tourism? I have absolutely no interest in space tourism. No, no, I, 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 I tell you, if you want to know what my great leap is into something that would benefit humanity, if you believe space exploration will benefit humanity, uh, I have been focused, Sharon, for over 10, 12 years on changing the cash out uh, by black workers of their 401k accounts when they change jobs. Oh, tell us more. What happens is when you change jobs, among, particularly among black workers, they're given an option to roll it over into an IRA or they're given an option to carry it with them to their new job or they're presented with the opportunity to take the cash out. That's true. The problem is when you take the cash yeah, out, yeah. you pay the taxes on the cash you take out and you lose the appreciation from the 401k when it's not in the financial system being managed for growth. And the result of that, Black Americans are very, very limited in terms of retirement savings. Mm. And I have made it my mission to get the large record keepers who manage 401k accounts, uh, Vanguard, Fidelity, Alight, and others, to say, why don't we create a seamless way to encourage Black minority and low-wage workers to keep their money in the system? Don't cash out. Let it grow during your work life. We'll make it so that if you change jobs, you go from Home Depot to Lowe's, your 401k account will follow you. It'll continue to grow as you work. And when you retire, you've accumulated that wealth savings from the management of that account that will help you live a better life in retirement, provide uh, retirement savings to your family, uh, and well as help close that huge wealth gap that exists between Black and white Americans because white Americans tend not to cash out at the same propensity and level of Black Americans. Black Americans cash out at about 65% wow. compared to white Americans around 35%. So I'm hoping in the next few weeks, I will be able to bring, announce to this country that I've been successful in bringing the large 401k record keepers into a consortium that will ultimately over a period of time save more than $670 billion in retirement savings for black and low wage workers. And that's, that to me is a space leap. That is to me yes. is going, going into the future. And, and I, I don't think I'm saying anything or demeaning all the people who work with me at BET. Uh, we did a great job. BET will be around long after I'm gone is that, if, if I look back and somebody said, what was your major, most meaningful achievement? It would be changing the retirement system so Black Americans 
can accumulate wealth through retirement savings or their 401k accounts uh, for the rest of their life. That is that's what I believe in. So, so I, you know, I'm not like Elon Musk going to space. I'm not Bezos going to space, but I I will say that a lot of black folks will be a lot happier if this comes about, well, when this comes about. And I would be glad to say, if you guys want to take somebody else's space, be my guest, but I'm focused on what I can do down here on earth. That, that is breathtaking. And, you, and wow, <laughs> that that would be incredible because I, know, I think we all know some somebody, um, our family members, ourselves uh, in many cases where that can be so tremendously um, impactful and, and long lasting. My goodness, please, please let us know if there's anything that we can do in terms of how we move, help you move that vision along relative to the being the beneficiaries of what that will bring. So thank you. Thank yeah, you. I, I, would, I would definitely do that because if every black worker who is working at a corporation that's a moder- that's managing a 401k account, say to them, look, make sure my 401k is part of this auto portability system. So mm-hmm. I can keep not cash out, keep it in the system, always know where it is and know what wealth it's going to mean to my family when I retire and my family's after I'm no longer here. That is incredibly important, um, particularly for those of us who are retiring and look back and say, I, I really should have done this differently. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But um, I know that um, in the time we have left, I'd like to also continue to pick your brain a bit because when we look at just the current economic conditions, because when you were talking about what um, particularly Black Americans do in terms of our 401ks and we take the money out to, to buy a house, we, you know, to, you know, those emergencies and, 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 it, and I've seen information where as, as, um, as people, we don't have, in comparison, we don't do a lot of saving. And so that has, has been impactful as well. But when we look what's happened over the last couple of years, um, never thought we'd see in our lifetime living through a pandemic. We're looking at right now some um, recovery, whether it's inflation, climate change, the, the war in Ukraine and Russia, um, and others. You know, where do you see, um, you know, where do you see, um, uh, us going from an economic standpoint, given all those things that are happening kind of right now? Well, Sharon, I, I think, and I'll go back a little bit to the 401k. If there, certainly, if you are a Black person and you need emergency cash or emergency need to fix the roof, repair the refrigerator, or help somebody who's a family member who's in stress, some, some dire need, it's kind of hard to make that choice to say, well, I, I need that money. I'm going to take it out. Right. And that happens. But there are ways, savings is the, the sort of called rainy day savings mm-hmm. is what gives you the flexibility not to have to do that. But uh, I can I can clearly understand that when you look at this, the economic income gap between white Americans, black Americans, white Americans have about 12 times the net worth of a black family. I can understand where you have a uh, uh, emergency need that you got to 
find money. And, and so I, I do understand that. But the long-term thing is saving money, investing money is the best way to ensure your financial security over time. So, but to your point, for Black Americans, and if I focus on, on Black Americans and our future in this country, there's, here's my biggest concern. I've been involved politically, uh, supporting a Congressional Black Caucus and making mm -hmm. donations and to everybody who believe in the things that I do politically and socially. For Black Americans, my biggest concern is that we politically have tremendous power that we don't exercise in our own best interests. What do you mean by that? It, it means that we tend to follow the political leaders uh, who tell us what they think is in our mm. best interest without having us exercise our power to say, yeah, we may be in the same party as you, but we think you should do this more than that. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to put our vote behind. Yeah, we like what you want to do on green energy. We like what you want to do on this particular program to help Ukraine. We like all those things. We're Americans too. <clears throat> but what we want carved out of that multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar bill is this. And unless you're willing to do that, those votes that you want for your priority, you don't get. And let's sit down and create a, a arrangement where you get what you want for your constituents and we get what we want for our constituents. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's politics. I go back and I talk, I talk to members of the caucus and I've talked about this publicly, Sharon, is that when the Congressional Black Caucus was founded about 1971, 72, mm -hmm. the founding members, there couldn't have been more than 15 or 16 of them, the founding members of the caucus said this, and I believe this, and this is what I mean when I say what we should do politically. The founding members of the caucus said our position in politics should be for Black American voters. Black Americans should have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. And to me, that means if you find party on the left is doing what's in your interest, they get your vote. If party on the right is doing what's in your interest, they get your vote. But mm -hmm. you don't give your votes willy-nilly without getting something for it. Mm. And that's where I feel that we tend to give up on our Black political power, sometimes just to stay in office. Right. Rather than leveraging it. I, you, I don't have to tell you, I don't have to tell your, your listeners that if you go back a year ago, the key issue was there's going to be a reparations bill and a reparations hearing on Capitol Hill mm -hmm. about reparations. And you know, I, I authored, uh, along with someone to help me prepare it, a reparations proposal on how much money should be available to blacks based on a, rep a reparations model. But there has been no reparations here. There has been no reparations bill. But there's been a Green New Deal that'll subsidize solar panels 
There's mm-hmm. been a $7,600 discount if you buy an electric car. The last time I looked, I don't know any black people who own electric car dealerships. Mm-hmm. And the last time I looked, I don't know any black folks who are manufacturing solar panels. In fact, most of the solar panels come out of China. So all of these things, I'm not begrudging people who believe in climate change and people who want to make sure that the environment is safe and and so on, but just put something in there that goes directly to the needs of black folks. Right. You know, whether it's low cost housing, whether it's uh, uh, mortgages that are available, all these things that happen, you know. So I look at this and so when I say what's going to happen to not just the global issue, not what's going to happen to uh, the issue in the war. What's going to happen to us as long as we fail to mobilize and utilize that black vote power, but not only mobilize and utilize it, but negotiate something in return. You want my vote? This is what I want. Mm -hmm. You don't deliver, you don't get it. Mm -hmm. It's standard politics. There's nothing evil about it. There's nothing, you know, uh, negative about it. It's how the system works. So, and and again, along that line, and and again, things I've talked about, I talked about it on uh, Squawk Box. Okay. You know that when George Floyd was murdered, large white corporations, many of them, Sharon, issued public statements about how much money that they're going to put into black equity and inclusion ideas or or policies or programs. Mm -hmm. And I read recently in a publication that there's been some almost $50 billion in accumulative pledges made as out of sort of a belief, hopefully some real belief that doing something as a result of George Floyd's murder would be helpful. But at the same time, I would argue that less then 5% of that money has ever been spent. Wow, less than 5%. Less than 5%. I went on Squawk Box and I said to the public who was listening that if Black America, if black, if these companies were serious, and they, they, didn't, they weren't mandated to do this by the government, they said they'd do it hopefully out of a real concern. Mm-hmm. I said, why don't you guys call uh, like the Minority Supplies Development Council, call other Black people organizations say, look, you guys form an audit committee. And every quarter, like we do as a publicly traded company, as a publicly traded company, you go to the market and you say, we're going to report on our quarterly performance. They expect you to do it. You're in some ways required to do it. Why don't you just report to us quarterly what you've done with your pledge? So we can say, congratulations, you've lived up to your pledge. Or why haven't you lived up to your pledge? So this is what I mean where if black people would take the power that they have to call into question when people commit to do things for us in return for our support, but they don't deliver, we've got to have a mechanism, a system in place to say, Bank number one, you said you're going to do $2 billion. Corporation number two, you said you're going to do a billion dollars, $500 million. Where is it? Why haven't you done it? You made the pledge. We didn't force you to do it. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that we as Black people need to focus on in our own best self-interest. And that's why I say no permanent friends, 
no permanent enemies. I don't care whether you're a Republican or Democrat. This permanent interest. Interest. Wow. There has to be some accountability somewhere. Um, I just love it. And so we have to begin tomorrow to figure out how do we hold folks accountable to what they've done, particularly in this situation, because we don't know when that would ever happen again. Yeah, I, I think you guys are a natural platform. to do. You yeah. already have the ear of the business community that your purpose is to move more opportunities for businesses with large corporations. You've got that. Well, okay. when they make a pledge, there's nothing wrong with asking, how can we help you monitor the performance of your own pledge? You're not saying you got to do it. There's no government law that say you have to do it to pay, to say George Floyd was murdered and we believe was a need for equity, inclusion, and diversity, this ESG stuff. Then you say, well, let us do it. And then quarterly, let us report back to you what you've done. Right. So we've got an out, like you said, an outside accountable mechanism. Not one that's internal. Internal is going to be hard to get them to do something if they're sort of part of the inside. But external, like you guys could be, you could say, hey, this is in the best interest of you. You made the pledge. It's in our best interest because we can help you do it. If you throw your hands up and say, hey, we want to do it, Sharon, but we can't find the right connected points. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. I think that's outstanding. I think that we should we should actually step up to, to the plate to do that. And I'd like to use um, this um, episode of what we're talking about to, to actually share that information because coming from you, I believe gives it credibility. I think you're absolutely right. That is something that we should be doing because we are positioned well in order to ask the question and then have the conversation. Yeah, you, you, you simply ask the question because, and companies are used to this. Every publicly traded company knows that every quarter when they issue a report, they have to go to the market and to their investors and say, we said we were going to sell this much. We said we we're going to generate this much in profit. And they go and say, well, we didn't do it because of this, or we did do it because of that. They're used to it. It's not like asking them to do something that they're not used to. And the fact is they made the promise themselves. And we ought not be afraid to ask them. Not, not at all. Where they are and their promise. Their promise, correct. Mm, outstanding. Hmm. Outstanding. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. And um, I, again, I, I kind of take away um, j just, just this flood of knowledge and and certainly appreciate the opportunity to to, to speak with you, and the 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 effect it's going to have because these are the kinds of questions you know we we have I've been doing this for seven years um, at the council and maybe a, a total of fifteen years in other places, but it is the kind of thing that entrepreneurs and particularly African American entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs period ask themselves. And when they see someone like you and all that you've been able to accomplish and you've been able to crystallize it for us, this is just so incredibly valuable. So thank you. Well, I'll tell you, one of the, I saw in one of the reports that you gave in preparation for this 
interview, there was a question about what advice can you give to mm -hmm. entrepreneurs just in a, in a simple sentence? And uh, it, it'll be this, it'll be very short. When I started BET and uh, John Malone gave me the first $500,000 to help me start the business. And uh, I'd never run a business before. My degree was in international affairs from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. And uh, I said, so I got, he gave me the, uh, the check and a short piece of paper saying we're partners now. And uh, <laughs> it took about 30, 30 minutes for him to do it. And I, I said, uh, John, I've never run a business. What advice can you give me? And, you know, I, of course, I did this after I had the check already. So I wouldn't go ask him before I had the check. So, and, and he said, he looked at me and he said, Bob, get your revenues up, keep your costs down. That was my Harvard Business School, per, you know, degree. Revenues up, costs down. So to all you entrepreneurs out there, if you want to know how to be successful in business, get your revenues up, keep your operating costs down. And you, I think you got a great chance of being successful. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here. Um, and what solid advice that is. Thank you so much. Certainly, certainly appreciate you very, very much. Thank you, Sharon. Good talking to you. Okay, good talking to you. And we'll follow up. We'd like for you to um, actually see this. And then um, we certainly at some point would love, love, love if you are on this side of the country, on this side of the world, to be able to meet with in person with some of our entrepreneurs. That would just be incredibly awesome as we celebrate our 50 years of existence. And yeah. thank you for the advice of how we could add value to um, our corporations, how and particularly to our businesses. And, and then uh, we have an opportunity in front of us that we can actually exercise. And thank you for pointing that out. Well, thank you for the recognition and the, uh, the award. And I will certainly make sure that happens. Thank okay, you. thank you. All right. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Thank you, Mr. Johnson, for a great conversation today. As I has, had expressed, you know, this is one that I will just kind of marinate on for a long time because it's been an inspiring conversation. I've, you know, we've gotten some marching orders from what he said and our audience, our audience can learn from this. This is like sitting at the feet of a giant. This is like sitting in a Harvard Business Review kind of course um, and we should never forget it. So thank you very, very much. But before we close, I'd like to recognize our sponsors who support our vision and help us each and every day advance our mission. Exelon and the Exelon companies of BGE and Pepco, Capital One, AMCUS, the Virginia MBDA Business Center, SB and companies, AARP, AT&T, BAE Systems, the BWI Thurgood Marshall International Airport, the City of Baltimore, the District of Columbia Department of Small and Local Business Development, Dominion Energy, the Ellison Group, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FRS Financial Realty Services, the Hilton, Horseshoe Casino, Huntington Ingalls, Lidas, Lockheed Martin, M&T Bank, the Maryland Governor's Office of Small Minority and Women Business Affairs, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Northrop Grumman, Parsons, Peapod Digital Labs, 
the Prince George's County Office of Central Services, SAIC, Sodexo, Truist, Tidings and Rosenberg, LLP, United States Postal Service, the University of Maryland College Park, the University of Maryland Global Campus, Washington Gas, Metro, Zillion Technologies, and Zones. And if you've missed any of our previous Hot Chat podcast episodes, you may visit www.crmsdc.com. Don't forget to like us, follow, and share this episode. And this is one to share and follow. Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube at CRMSDC. And subscribe to our channel and podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Before I close, I'd like to expend a special thanks to our Coronavirus Response and Relief Center and our media production team for the behind-the-scenes support in helping us make this happen today. Thank you, Sonia, Nicole, Renee, and Graybo Designs. And until next time, we'll see ya. Thank you again for having or listening to this important discussion today.